What's up, guys? Welcome to Couple Versus Podcast with your host, Matt Sartrick, and myself, Peter Fendura. Hope you guys are having a good day. Remember, download our episodes. Check us out on Instagram. Check us out on YouTube. We're on a majority of all music platforms or podcasting platforms. Give us a five stars on YouTube. We have some good stuff coming out. Make sure to comment. Let us know if you guys are interested in any kind of topics or you guys want to hear us talk about any specific things. Let us know. How's it going, Matt? Good, man. Jak Shemash, which means how are you in Polish, guys? Jak Shemash, Peter. Oh, dobrze. What's a bitch? What's a bitch? He said, I'm doing pretty good. I think he forgot how to speak Polish for a second there. So today, guys, in this episode, we're going to talk about sleep hygiene, why it's important, regardless if you're day shift and night shift. And we're also going to talk about hospice, how delaying in treatment and putting patients in hospice actually increases the the suffering for not only the family, but also the patient. Yeah, I feel like I don't see a lot of hospice done, uh, in, or at least on my unit for the most part. I feel like people are late on it majority of times, or they just don't even know it's an option. So it's always good to you know, provide the option. And maybe you have like a hospice nurse on your unit or a palliative care nurse or like a, like a team that deals with, with end-of-life care. You know, somebody should definitely bring it up when, when it's a good time. I think it's definitely a touchy subject and people don't do it enough, especially some patients, some fresh nurses too. I feel like it creates a lot of like, um, like uncomfortableness for them. But anyways, guys, those that don't know what hospice is, is basically a shift from treatment. So normally you're treating um, the diagnosis, what's going on, the disease, for example, antibiotics, but hospice kind of goes away from that. And you're more focused not on curing, but treating pain, relieving pain, relieving suffering, and having the best quality of life you can have towards the end of your life. So it definitely is different compared to like putting, you know, breathing tubes in, doing pressors. It's just kind of acknowledging what's happening and putting the patient at rest, you know? It's a really tough concept to grab because the family or whoever's making these decisions has to be ready to take the next step. They have to understand that their relative, their friend, whoever the patient is, is really sick. And there's really nothing that we could do for them at this point in time that can kind of make them better or, or cure them. So really the only way out of the situation is just to make them comfortable. We've did all the measures we can. Now let's try to focus more on comfort. There's nothing that we could solve anymore. We literally took all these approaches, gave all these medications and didn't help. So it's, it's very difficult because the person that's making these decisions is the one that has to let go of their family member or whoever the patient is to them. That's a really difficult thing to do because you're literally letting a loved one go. Like you understand that they're, they're not going to get better. Like this is basically the beginning to the end. Do you, do you like, for, I don't know if, if it's like, like this in your hospital, but for example, for me, I noticed that Hispanics have a very hard time letting go when it comes to end of life and things like that. And I feel like they hold on to the family member for so long. I don't know why it's, I asked once and they said it's due to them feeling like they're playing God where they're decide that they're decide they're they're deciding when the patient should go. But is the, I don't think that's true. Like do you have you realized a patient population that does that? Not necessarily any specific um specific one kind of population, but for me it's been kind of more balanced. And majority of what I see is people are just waiting till the end, till somebody codes or or they end up passing away with like a, like a stat that isn't, isn't full code, like a full let and, or like a, or like a no DNR as well. And yet a lot of majority of people that I deal with missed opportunity to even do hospice care. 
I've maybe dealt with hospice, like somebody that transitioned to hospice, maybe a handful of times, maybe five times in, in med of three years, which is way too little. And as nurses, we kind of know the disease process and how it works and kind of where the end of the line is. And this is where treatment is basically going to stop. We could keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's going to just delay the, the ongoing issue, which is the patient's going to die. And I think the craziest scenarios that I see this happening, just like you mentioned, the patient's going to die is kidney disease, bro. You have the patients on dialysis. They're usually on dialysis because of diabetes that wasn't managed properly. They start getting foot ulcers. They start getting their freaking toes cut, half metatarsal, so half foot uh, amputation, then going BKA, which is below the knee amputation. And then the worst is AKA, which is above the knee amputation where you're, you're like literally have no knees. It's just two little wiggly. <laughs> I want to call it little chicken wings. It's like little stumps, bro. And it's so crazy to see patients like that. Usually have a, like a, a feeding tube as well. They, they come for reoccurrent UTIs, urinary tract infections, pneumonia, like, Oh dude, that shit looks bad, man. That's, that's suffering. I feel bad for that damn patient. And I don't, I can't believe that family, family members let that happen. You know? But that's just my two cents. And there's no telling if the person is in pain. If they're unresponsive, not responding because of their disease process, then they can't tell you if they're in pain or not. That's probably the, one of the scariest things. What if they have this huge amount of pain and we're not doing anything about it because they can't communicate it? So why not to make them comfortable? Like someone's got to bring this palliative or hospice care issue up to somebody because a lot of the times these patients or these families don't even know that it's available. And I don't bring it up too often. I know physicians bring it up probably more than me because they're really, really good about that. And a lot of times these families say, say no, because it's like you said, they don't, don't want to play God. They think their family member could pull through and they're just scared to make a decision because that decision impacts their whole life and it impacts the lives around them and whoever has ever dealt with this patient. Yeah. And imagine throwing like dementia into the freaking the scramble, bro. Like these patients have no idea where they're at like they're in a complete different reality yet we just keep them alive we put them in nursing homes and they are humans you know they all deserve to live but like these family members are not realizing the quality of life as we always mention that, that they don't have anything they have like no idea like what's going on um but just to kind of stand track of the topic right so hospice um the people who qualify because not everybody could get into hospice you have to a healthcare provider physician has to basically approve you basically say you are terminally ill and you have less than six months to live or less. And the study that we kind of found to kind of prove that, hey, people are suffering more not being in hospice is a study that was published by the General Geatric Society. They took 16 years, patients 70 and older, uh, 754 of them to be exact, and 40% of them ended up going into hospice the last year of their lives. The medium showed that 40 um, the patients that went to hospice, they only survived two weeks. And just to kind of blow your guys' mind a little bit more, the most uh, most debilitating symptoms that these people had were pain, nausea, depression, and shortness of breath. And hospice focuses on decreasing all those symptoms. And their symptoms didn't decrease till they actually started hospice. So the question is, is are we needlessly suffering for no reason for months on because we're delay, delaying hospice? That's really crazy to think about. Like imagine if you're that person, you're that patient and you're suffering for six months, six months, 
you have shortness of breath for six months, you can you barely breathe. Like you feel like you're suffocating every day. And the worst thing about that is you can't say that you can't breathe. You can't say that you have a trouble breathing. You can't say that, hey, I need pain medication. You can't say any of any of those things. So someone else is making these decisions for you. I feel like people should definitely have something like that in their will. Like if I have eight months to live and there's no cure for my issue and I'm not res- responding to any kind of stimuli, just put me in, in hospice care. I think people want you to start thinking about doing that instead of having somebody else make decision for them. Because many of the times the patient's idea of what they want towards the end of life, is completely different from what their guardian wants or whoever their POA is. Well, if they have a POA, I would hope they at least know what, what the patient wants. And see, you work with like LVADs, right? So I feel like LVADs is basically end of life care. Like their heart is not functioning properly. They have this device that sits outside of them. That's literally perfusing blood for them, right? Cause their heart cannot like, do you feel like they're getting, they're suffering more? It's not, it's not used for end of life care. Um, a lot of times it's used to a bridge to, to transplant and majority of the times it's used to add years to your life. Like an LVAD almost guarantees you the next amount of years, years to live. Because maybe they could figure something else out or you could change up your, your life and you could get put on a transplant list. So it's not end of life care. It's not like they, you know, put this thing in you and they say, yep, this is, this is everything. <laughs> you know, you're, this is your end of life. This is how we extend it. No, like there's more, this is, takes upkeep. They can't just put an LVAD in, in anybody, even though sometimes they do put an LVAD in someone that's not, not the sort of best, best case, but it's up to them. At least given the least they are at least giving them a shot. It's not anything close to end of life care. There's no LVADs that have ever been put in as end of life care because that's not something comfortable. No, this is a machine in your body that you got to be anticoagulated for life. There's so many risks associated with it. So it's not something that's that you would want for end of life care. It's not used for end of life care. Okay. Sorry for that correction then. So it's used to promote life, correct? Pr- promote years. Um, is there an average that you know that you, maybe people speculate that you hear how much it extends? No, I mean, I work in hospital settings. So obviously, I'm going to see like the worst out of the worst. But if you go on like heartmate.com or, or in our, if you just Google heart, heartmate, it will tell you their, their life expectancy. Like some people have lived 10, 12 years. I think a few of the original ones that got the heart made to are, are still alive. So it's just, it's, it's, I'll probably say probably choose you like at least a solid three years. Okay. It's probably like, you know, on a lower side, I'm sure people get six. Um, it just depends on a person. There's different kinds of LVADs. Um, like I said before, there's people that get to a bridge to a, to a transplant. So eventually that LVAD gets explanted and they get a new heart. So, which are you counting those years with the heart as well, or just the years during the LVAD? You know, there's a lot of metrics that, that go into this. So I'll probably say like a good five years. Okay. And we're just speculating guys. Like Peter's just talking out of his ass here. It says five years, you know, we're not doctors or the people or the company that goes around and knows how to th- this device works in and out. So we're just two nurses talking shit, right, Petey? Yeah. But I'm sure you could go on hospice if you have an LVAD. Like that, that's, a, that's an option, but it's just kind of, I feel like people are less likely to go to hospice with an LVAD because if they're dying, it's usually like the LVAD's failing, failing as well. So it's kind of more difficult. Yeah, man. That's dude. Heart failure is a nasty thing. Every honestly, honestly, anything that's in the hospital that we kind of deal with more of the critical side, it's, um, it's pretty gnarly, but to kind of summarize this hospice topic, I don't know if you have anything else to add, but I would definitely say as a nurse, like, 
get your goals and priorities straight when it comes to anything. Like even if it's a regular patient, you want you always want to ask that question like, hey, going to be a full code and explain that if it's a patient that's coming with like recurrent because we noticed that like, hey, the people that are already kind of like sick and I don't want to say end of life six months, but just kind of like, you know, just getting old and recurrently coming to the hospital. You know that that's it's only going to happen more often if it's pneumonia, if it's getting older. So you should definitely always discuss with the family end of life care goals like, hey, if this happens, are you OK with everything is happening or are you aware if you get this trick, you might be coming in for pneumonia, just allowing them to understand the options? I believe that if a physician brings up hospice care, I feel that families and patients are more inclined to accept it because they feel like it's coming from a, a higher authority, which which is people see doctors as, as higher authority. They're they're valuable and how to respect the figures. I feel like when a doctor brings it up is it's going to be brought up in a way that's more beneficial for the patient family because it's coming from someone that is actually a medical doctor. And I feel like they're more accepted to the fact that the doctor says, hey, we did all we can. These are the next steps that we could do. I feel like it's when it comes from his words, it definitely does a lot more, a lot more benefits to the family and the patient. I agree with that one. But I feel like we as nurses, we should still kind of push a little bit towards that medium. You know what I mean? No, of course. And the last thing that I forgot to mention is people don't know this, that like just because you're in hospice doesn't mean you can't get out of hospice. Like there is a reversal. It's not like a one exit or like, hey, you're in hospice, then that's it. Some people go into readmission with different things in cancer. And then some pe- some patients get back out and go back into getting treatment. Like I've, 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 I've had that happen. That's actually a key thing to bring up because like you said, I didn't even know that you could get, up, get out of hospice until, until you brought it up a little, a little bit ago. Okay. Yeah. So sleep hygiene, guys. So why do we see some people that are so energetic, so uppity, go-getters, and you try to figure out what are they doing differently than I'm doing? And it's, you know, when you look at them, it's hard to figure out because you, you, you try to imitate them. You try to do what you can. But the fact that it could be sleep. You don't know how much they sleep until you ask them. You don't know how their sleeping schedule is. And I feel like a sleep is a key driver into being happy and healthy and just getting things on your life. And if they're jumpy and they're not sleeping enough, ask them if they're doing cocaine. That's a possibility. Or caffeine. Or caffeine. Um, people do. Yeah, people do those caffeine tablets. I feel like here when I'm in this hospital, man, they be they be pouring these cups of coffee, man. And I've realized as, you know, starting off with one little tip for myself is working night shift. I stopped drinking caffeine after. 12 o'clock at night because I'll go to sleep like eight o'clock. Like caffeine has a half-life that a lot of people don't understand. And if you're consuming 500 milligrams of caffeine, which is an F ton, but sake of math here, in an hour, I think the half-life gets cut in half. So you still have 250 circulating, correct? Something no, like it's that. actually the half actually looks up because I was um I was going stuff stuff at work. And half-life of coffee, I believe, is five hours, or half-life of, of caffeine is actually five hours. So you're, you're still going to have 250 milligrams of caffeine if you have 500 cup of Starbucks espresso shot five hours in. And right. that's why people that drink caffeine or coffee or Monsters or Red Bull or any kind of caffeinated beverage, if they do that consistently, you know, they're going to get the caffeine rush from the 500. But once it gets cut in half, they don't feel anything. But internally, your body still feels it. Your liver is still digesting it. Your kidneys are still processing it. And just because you don't feel it doesn't necessarily mean that your mind or your body isn't feeling it. Exactly. And even if you like it or not, caffeine has side effects on sleep. Like it affects and inhibits like certain REM cycles 
I don't completely know what they are, but I just I'm aware of it because even on this band that I have, the Whoop Band, if you it asks you if you have drink in a caffeinated drink in the past like four hours, because it negatively inhibits your like sleep cycle, like sleep hygiene performance, whatever it is. Um, that's the, why when that's why also once you meet somebody that doesn't drink coffee very often or caffeine, and you give them a cup of coffee, their goal are for like twelve hours, like like their day is set, like they're, they're gonna rush through everything because they're not used to their coffee. And that really shows you the half-life. Like you see it, you take your coffee and they drink their coffee and you're like, how are you still feeling this? You know, they're like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just feeling it. it's been already like five hours in into the, or five hours since the last cup. Like, you know, you drank yours at, at eight and they're still having the, have the head rush at 4 p.m. You're just like, how is this going on? But I don't feel it. Definitely. How many, used to it too much. how many cups of coffee do you drink a day? Let's see. I probably do a cup and a half to work because I bring a beaker and I'm sure that's more than a cup. That's probably a cup and a half. Um, and then at night it just varies. Usually my coffee, even though I make it at like six thirty, it lasts me till about midnight. And then depends how I'm feeling after midnight. Sometimes I, I don't drink it. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I have a Red Bull. It just just varies. Probably the last two weeks I probably had coffee. So six shifts. The last six shift I probably had caffeine two out of those six. So a little little less than half. But Joe, but you always have some kind of caffeine. But yeah, I have some kind of a caffeine on the way to work. Yeah. Okay. You- so sometimes what I do is I'll have a cup. The best I've been at recently in the past month, a cup just to work. And what I've done recently is because I've been, I did that whole stretch, so many shifts. I've been doing a cup when I wake up and I'll have a cup and I'll sip on it and I'll stop at midnight. Midnight is my cutoff no matter what. 1230, give or take. And it's just been helping me with my sleep performance because I've been, I've been mop literally modifying it trying to get the most benefit ever since i got this band believe it or not i'm pretty sure i'll sleep deprived for quite some time well that one time i told you you need like 12 hours to catch up right it did it told me i need 12 hours of sleep just to get back to where i need to be based on my heart rate variability that's like that's some shit and even even on this um, band uh, like there's like a literally a graph that shows you how every single night shift i'm working it dips down so as your HRV heart rate availability is dipping down, that means your sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, is more prevalent in your body because HRV heart rate variability is a measure between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So <laughs> on my sixth shift out of those eight days, it dipped down, man. It was really bad. And, and, it's, and it's affecting my sleep, if you think about it, because I have a bunch of freaking epinephrine, all those catecholines just bumping, man. Just because I'm like stressed out technically, um, not mentally, just like your body physically. That's a good perspective. That's some good show right there. So you're saying whoop band is helpful in general? Like it did it finally like uh, accumulate or, or acclimate to your body? I think it's working pretty well. Yeah, I'm trying to catch up on sleep because I've been working so much. So jujitsu probably didn't help today, but I'm definitely going to knock out, get eight plus because dude sleeping more and i stopped working out on my like um days that i that i work bro difference in mental clarity man so i only work out on my um days off now oh solid it's not bad yeah so, i work out like i guess it depends how my schedule is and how my work day goes and those that want the whoop end or want to know more about it dm me on instagram at matt's mindset or something and i'll send you a referral code and we could get a month each free there you go. You guys should definitely at least try it out. You know, if you don't like it, you can always return it, right? You just ship it back to them and, you know, that's, you. Can, I believe you, you keep the watch. It's like a prescription. 
that you renew or a subscription that you, that you renew. And if you don't like it, you just cancel whenever. Yeah. Well, you have to cancel after six months. So that's how they get you. But, uh, but I kind of, it's kind of funny because this kind of reminds me of, because I'm not, we're talking about sleep hygiene now. I thought I was sleep deprived. And I feel like me and you both have like bad sleep sometimes because we just sacrifice it. Like, and then everybody does that. I feel like if you have to get shit done, the first thing we go go after is less sleep, even though that's the best form of self care. But it reminds me of that story that you mentioned. Remember how like you came to my house and you don't you didn't know if you took a shower because you just like don't remember the drive home. Just tell us that story, man. Wait, wait, talk. Wait, talk about when the story. When does this happen? So you you don't remember driving home. You just remember. You just remember oh, like from work. Yeah. I used to live in Lockport back no, in the day. Back back where you live now. So you basically like came home and you remember sit, sitting on a couch and then all you remember is waking up. You don't remember if you showered. Oh, that was probably like after the hard work day. Yeah. And then you and then you came to my house because we had like a podcast meeting and you're like, I'm fucking itchy, man. I don't know if I took a shower today. Damn, I don't know. I don't remember that happening. See, I was so tired I didn't remember that occurring either. I don't know. Oh. But I'm sure that that happened to me before when I used to drive to Lockport when I had like a half an hour drive home from work. Man, that was a pain in the ass. So I was up like 40 minutes and I would not know how I got home. And I was so tired. Like I woke up with different clothes the next morning. Like I'm like, I, like Matt said, I don't even know how, if I showered or not. But yeah, sometimes you just work so much and you just go to the gym or you try to cram on doing some stuff before you should go to bed. And guess what? Now you've been up two, three, a lot. Through two or three hours longer than you should have, and it's already two o'clock, one o'clock, and you're like, damn, now I'm gonna cut my sleep off. And yeah, you're right, people do sacrifice their sleep just to be more more productive. And that's something gonna get you so far. There's gotta be some point in that month or in that week where you devote a few days to your to your sleep or just try to cut it off the lights or try to cut off work at a certain time. You kind of get you gotta get yourself back on on the on track. Because if you keep delaying these things, like, hey, I gotta do this now, I'll sleep later. It's not gonna get you very far for very long. Like we, people have died from sleep deprivation. Like sleep deprivation is one of the torture techniques they they use back in the in the CIA and FBI. Now tell us about that, man. Water torture, huh? Nah, those, those are those are tough times, man. Tough times. Oh man, I feel like we're having a good conversation here, but let's stay on topic, right? So, sleep hygiene is as vital as literally having a balanced diet and exercise. Like studies show that sleep helps with better performance, concentration. It uh, helps you preventing gaining weight, um, and it lowers heart disease. Like it pre- prevents depression, helps strengthen the immune system. We did a study about it, right? How it um, boosts like the CD4 cells. So that's yeah, it um, makes it yeah, it makes your uh, T cells stickier, so they will they're able to stick better to a bacteria or virus or whatever the infecting cell is. Such a smart T cell, man. Love those things, huh? Fighting off the coronavirus when it's coming from mainland China. Are they? Are T cells the ones fighting it off? Or is it killer B cells? I don't know, man. I can look that up. Can I find out? Yeah, it's crazy because health, the medical field is just so vast, man. Like you just try to cram stuff in like a computer system. There's some things you just like forget that you just have to keep educating yourself on. That's why there's probably um, CEs, right, for nurses, like the continuing education. Yeah, man, I hate those. I do them at work and they suck. And if you're, and if you have a CCRN, you got to do a lot more. Yeah, man, that sucks. So anyways, um, sleep hygiene, guys, it's basically a behavior. It's a habit. It's your practice before and after sleep. It's very important, and it's going to make a difference in your sleep quality. And as you know, sleep hygiene matters. So let's go off with like a few tips that we have for you that we kind of came up with that 
definitely you should do to have better sleep performance. One of them is keep your room cool. I don't know about you, PD, but I like, I like my socks. I like my feet uncovered when I go to bed every single night. If I got a blanket over it, I must be freezing my ass. It always has to be out other than that. It's got to be uncovered and cool. No socks. I don't understand people wear socks to bed. Like you're wearing socks all day and you're going to choose suit. I don't even care if they're clean socks. Like if, first of all, if you got to breathe, let, let them breathe. We're literally wearing socks or shoes all day. Just take off your damn socks. Let your feet breathe. And it's got to be cool, man. If, it, if it's not cold, dude, I start sweating. I start uncovering myself and you're still not cool. I feel like um, like I have a fever or something, man. It's just so uncomfortable. Like I hate when I sweat and sleep. I got to have a cold. Oh, I, I wake up pissed off. And I also noticed for some reason when I have a, like sodium before bed, I tend to be, it's harder for me to fall asleep, which is so weird. I'd have to, I have to look into, I just re realized that. The next tip that we have for you guys is make sure you go to bed and wake up every single day the same way, which for us, unfortunately is not working out. It's a tip we can't utilize because we work night shift, but you should have a set time where you're ready for bed and it's a circadian rhythm. Your body gets naturally used to it. You should follow that. Like you should make that possibility even on weekends if that's possible. But I know our age, it's like a, this podcast has a younger age group. So I know you wild, wild animals like out there like to party late at night on the weekends. There you go. Man likes to party. And this, your bedroom should be your place to sleep. That should be like your, your bear's den or your, or your lion's cave. Like only sleep. You have to associate that room with sleeping. And that's going to help you actually fall asleep. Because if you bring a laptop in and start doing work, your brain's going to associate the bed with just more work. You're not going to be able to fall asleep. You want to be quiet. So minimize the noise. I know some people like music, but that music can be very loud because if your music is loud, your brain is going to think you're, you're, you're still awake. It should be nice, quiet, and dark. I know working night shift, it might be an issue having a fully dark room, but get like those, those current curtains that you know reflect the, the sun more. I forget what they're called. A blackout curtains. Get blackout curtains. But make sure you have a nice, quiet room and just that room just for sleeping. Don't sleep on the couch. Don't sleep somewhere else. Just in that room. I, yeah, so what I do sometimes too is I'll tell Alexa to put on ocean waves and um, – Sometimes I'll lay the incense. I'll put a candle on for a little bit. I do. I try to unwind. Like, honestly, reading before bed is awesome. I try to do it all the time. Sometimes it works out. When I come back from work, though, like after the morning, I don't need to read anything, dude. I like after that warm shower, which is another tip that we'll mention is just I just pass out. Yeah, just like you're have like a like a sleep protocol. Sometimes I do read a book before bed. Maybe my I have a. I have some trouble falling asleep. Yeah, I read a book because you know that makes my mind focus on one thing. I'm not thinking about tomorrow. I'm not thinking about what I gotta do later. I'm not thinking about going to the bathroom. But you should definitely pee before before bed too. That's one that gets me up sometimes too. I forget. But yeah, try to read a book. Try to focus on one thing. That's not your phone. You don't want to use your phone because that's gonna emit light, emit uh, the blue light. With blue light, I actually looked at blue light like a little bit ago, and they said that's not as harmful as, as we think to to our eyes or, or to sleep. But you know, why not just diminish the risk even further. So you're trying to focus on one thing, just maybe focus on one thought, maybe like Matt said, put on some slow classical music or some ocean waves, but make it a like a lower volume. So it's not banging your eardrums very hard. And then you make sure you set a timer for like an hour or two. So you're not like playing ocean waves or soft music for eight hours whenever you're sleeping. Another one is like dedicate that bed 
for sleep and nothing else. Like you have to train your mind, right? Like as we talked about, the brain creates habits and it creates patterns because it doesn't know right from wrong, right? So if you dedicate your bed just for sleep, that's what it's going to be. You're going to train your mind. But if you're going to bed and you start checking emails, checking social media, doing random stuff last minute before bed, you are programming your brain to do that. Like it's just, it's habit, guys. And don't take very long naps during the day because if you end up taking, let's say you have a nice idea, I'm going to take a nap for half an hour. Then there's a half that half nap that half an hour. Sometimes your napping goes from the planet 30 minutes to, you know, four or, or three hours. And that's going to throw your body off further than, than it's been thrown off before. And same with the snooze button. Try to minimize the snooze button. They say our research shows or whoever did the, the studies, it was something from uh, Google Scholar that I read. The ideal snooze time is 90 minutes. So if you plan on waking up at, let's say, 8 o'clock, you know, put your alarm for one. 7.30, that's an hour and a half, right? 8 o'clock, that's 6.30. Hour. 6.30. So put your alarm, snooze alarm at 6.30 and then your actual alarm at 8. Make it 90 minutes. That's what research shows that is the best snooze time. And it kind of preps your body because you get still one more cycle of, of REM sleep within a time frame. That's actually a pretty cool tip. And what I've done now is I used to be really bad with this shit. I used to snooze for like 20, 30 minutes, like every freaking eight minutes, man. And I used to wake up probably be more groggy and tired. So now I have one snooze, five minutes, and that's it. Sometimes I'm just like so disciplined now where I wake up before that five minutes and just get my day going. But I didn't know that snoozing like messes with you like that. That's okay. Well, I mean, now you know, right? Now, now you learned something. It says your, your best snooze time is to get at least one more um, cycle of sleep. That's basically it. So it kind of preps your body. You mentally, you kind of know you got one more and then, then you got to wake up. And you guys should be having a comfortable bed too. Get some nice pillows, get some nice sheets, get a nice mattress. Because if you're not comfortable with a 20-year-old mattress, you know, probably time for time for a change. There's a bunch of foam mattresses out there. If you don't like foam, there's still the regular spring mattress that they can get. But actually, make sure you're comfortable in what you're sleeping in. You know, get some pajamas or if you sweat too much, you know, sleep in your underwear, sleep nude. Doesn't matter. Just make sure everything is comfortable around you. You got a discount for us for sleepwear, Peter? I do not. I do not. Maybe so, I like bamboo pillows. I have bamboo pillows and, and they're good. They're good if you like your body a little elevated. Um, sometimes I use those. Sometimes I use regular pillows like a goose, goose feather. Hope people aren't going to get mad at me for having goose, goose feather pillows, but those are also good. You got to be freaking careful on what you say nowadays, right? Because a vegan might attack you. Yeah, not, dude. Not, not to talk shit there. Um, another thing is, is exercising, guys. So you don't want to do it before sleep because exercise releases endorphins, which, which actually will make it harder for you to fall asleep. So exercising does actually improve um, the stages of sleep, but you don't want to do it right before bed. So definitely avoid doing something vigorously straining right before bed for that, for that reason. And that goes with like caffeine as well. Like when you think of vigorous training, you might not think caffeine is associated with vigorous training, but it is, you know, increasing your, your epinephrine and your SNS. That's going to raise your heart rate. It's going to, you know, portray like your, you know, flight, flight and flight response. And you're going to get your heart rate up. You're not going to be able to fall asleep. And not every night's going to be a perfect night. We're going to sleep the full seven hours, eight hours. You know, don't get upset if you sleep five and a half or six or four, just take it by the way you feel. Sometimes your body doesn't need very much sleep. Maybe you didn't do much that day and you're okay. You can be okay on four or five hours. You actually did so little than your baseline that your body's going to be ready to go within the next four or five hours. That's going to be fine. But just don't get stressed that you're not getting enough sleep because 
that's going to be the one key culprit of you not getting enough sleep is you actually stressing about it. Count to 100, right. just relax. Count to 100 sheep. But like, even like if insomnia, like if you have insomnia, you stressing about you falling asleep is stress and it's, you're thinking, so technically you're awake. That's like the worst thing to do. You just fucking lay there and chill out and stop telling yourself. And, that, and the reason I'm mentioning is because that's what I used to do. Like I used to be getting, I used to get angry about not being able to fall asleep. Like that's, that's only freaking, just like you said, parasympathetic nervous system being released. It's only making it harder for me actually to fall asleep. Yeah. Don't forget to take our context too. I also want to sleep in my context. I'm kind of used to it by now, but try not to because it dries out your eyes and you can just wake up pissed in the first place. I have, the only time I do it is when I'm honestly drunk and I'll forget. That's the only time, but it which happens. Is every, which is every day, right? Every day, yeah, I'm a functioning alcoholic, guys. Yo, JK. Welcome to your AA meeting. Yeah, next thing you know, I'm gonna go, <laughs> I'm gonna go to work for my new contract. They're gonna make me pee right away in the club. I'm like, for sure, guys. What happened? Show me some you're evidence. Like, you're like, man, you smell like alcohol. You're like, no, it's, it's like cologne, you know. It's it's the Gucci Chanel brand. <laughs> Gucci Chanel. Nah, next one. Oh, we kind of already mentioned this one. So limit your like screen time. And that's I don't know. It's, the blue light debate. Not too sure. I have it on my computer. I have it on my phone. I have blue light glasses. Maybe it's not as significant, but definitely not being on the screen before bed, like instead reading a book helps. And also taking a warm shower, bath, whatever you guys prefer. I'll, we should definitely do a, toll, a poll on Instagram to see if people do a bath or shower. I'm curious. But anyways, do I used that. To do baths. I used to do baths left my um my parents' place because they had a, a bigger tub than I have here, and that was always nice. Here I have like a smaller tub, like it's uncomfortable. Like my like you gotta stick your legs out the water, it's just like ah, dude, it's, it's pain in the ass. Were you one of those princesses that poured poured yourself a little bottle of wine, or were you just kind of no, I no, but I did use like the the, the lodge bombs, you know those bath bombs. Uh huh. I, I definitely did those, those, and probably like I used to do that and a book and Epsom salts, and I was that was kind of relaxed. I do that like once a week. That was clutch. That, that's actually a pretty good self-care routine, man. You know, what am I purchasing if I was taking a bath? Those um, back massages that people have. It looks like a cane and you're actually be able to get into your back. I wouldn't mind purchasing one of those. It might be my um, next Amazon purchase. Yeah, not a bad idea. I don't know. Like those massage tools never like are, were interested to, interesting to me because like I used them before and it's like you do it on your back, but it's made out of plastic or whatever the thing is. And it doesn't go hard enough. Like, yeah, it vibrates, but you still can't get that now. You need like a something like a, like a wooden thing. So, because you feel like you're gonna break, like if you dig in deep to like your your shoulder blade, plastic is gonna start to crack, and it's gonna feel like you're gonna you're gonna break if you push any deeper. So they're not that they're not that um, hardy, I guess. Okay, it's funny. Yesterday, my patient's um, wife was like laying on the floor on the towel, and I came in there. I'm like, what? I'm like, what's going on? And she was laying on a lacrosse ball. Because it's supposed to be a little bit bigger and firmer than a tennis ball. And she was that'll probably do better than, than she, a massage, let's be honest. Yeah, and she was using that to massage her like um knots in her back. Pretty cool idea. All right, guys. Hope you like our episode. So as nurses out there, remember nurses and whoever else is listening, remember there is an option of care called hospice care. Hospice care is for somebody that has less than six months or has six months to a year to live, and it's just done to make them more comfortable in their passing. Someone's got to bring it up. People don't know about these, but this does exist. It is an option to care when there's nothing else else to be done. And it has to get take, taken advantage of because we don't see it enough out there. And also, guys with sleep, try to get enough sleep. 
try and get a nice sleep routine going, take a bath, have a cool room, take off your socks and have a dark and quiet room. And don't look at your phone for at least an hour and make sure you stay away from caffeine for at least five hours. I agree with that advice. And people, thank you for tuning in with us. I hope you guys join us next week. Give us a rating. Give us a follow. We're doing more and more interactive stuff on social media. If you guys aren't there, YouTube, give us a rating, please. We're growing. Algorithm gets boosted and people see us more often. We all want to grow. And we're going to have some news coming soon, right? Yes, sir. All right, guys. Have a good one. See you guys next week.